James chapter 2, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 14 through verse 20 of James 2. James 2, beginning at verse 14, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needful for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we again praise you and thank you for your word, for its instruction and encouragement. And as we come to this uh, passage this morning, we pray that your spirit would be active in our midst, poured out upon us, going forth with your word, and that it would be truly opening our our, uh, ears and our minds and our hearts to the truth that is here. And as your word goes forth in the power of the Spirit, it would truly find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil, which will bring about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We pray now, Father, for your blessing upon your holy word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, we've noted several times before that James is a very popular book. Right? Many Christians enjoy James because it's very practical and it gives a clear guidelines for living the kind of life that Christ has called us to live. And even though James has both, of course, people tend to enjoy the practical much more than the theological or, or doctrinal. But the challenge that a practical book like James presents is that it's one thing to read James and be challenged with clear direction as to how you're to live. But you see, it's quite another to actually take the message of James to heart and to do it and to actually live it out, putting it into practice in your lives. Indeed, it seems rather pointless to have practical guidelines if you aren't actually going to use them and to do them. Again, this has basically been the point that James has been making here in in chapter 2. First, he challenged his readers to not discriminate by showing partiality. And then verses 8 to 13, he emphasized the importance of obeying the royal law. And now, in our passage this morning, James seeks to emphasize how works, that is, doing the law living out the the practical guidelines of God's Word in our lives, how these must accompany our profession and our confession of faith. In other words, our faith 
isn't to be expressed and demonstrated with mere words, but must be a living faith demonstrated by works that abound to the glory of God. James begins by asking here two questions. And uh, in verse 14, the first, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And then the second question, Can faith save him or can that faith save him? We're going to consider each of these questions and their answers, but it's first important to to step back and make some clarifications about what James is talking about. And in particular, is James saying something here that's at odds with what the Apostle Paul says in other places in the New Testament? Now this point is, is very significant because throughout church history, the message of James has at times been kind of pitted against the teaching of Paul. In fact, the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther, claimed James was full of straw because of this emphasis on works seemed to be in contradiction to Paul's emphasis on faith. Now this apparent conflict really reaches its climax here in in James chapter 2, verses 21 to 26, Lord willing, that we'll consider next time. But here, James uses the example of Abraham in the Old Testament. And in verse 24, he says, You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. But you see, the problem is then Paul also using Abraham as an example, and in Romans 3 verse 28 says this, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And so again, it seems obvious. Are, Are Paul and James truly at odds with one another? Again, this will... This will be dealt with, again, more detail next week when we consider verses 21 and 26. But the simple answer for us here is that though there appears to be a conflict on a very surface level reading, well, there really is no conflict or contradiction at all. The message of Paul and the message of James are both critical to understanding a proper and balanced view of our salvation and faith and the relationships of works. To each of those. Besides, if we confess the truth that it's one and the same Holy Spirit who actually worked through both Paul and James as they wrote their respective letters, well, then there can be no contradiction. Right? God doesn't lie, and He doesn't deceive or tempt to lead astray. And so, this is what James established, remember, back in chapter 1. And so there is no contradiction between James and Paul. And again, just hang on till next week and we'll look at that more clearly. The second point of clarification is that there's a relationship or a connection between faith and works. Now we know when we confess and believe by faith alone in Jesus Christ, we're justified and made right in God's sight. We're not saved by our works. We can't earn God's favor by doing this or that. Because those who are dead in their sins and transgressions can do no good thing in God's sight. 
But, as it's been said, we're justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Meaning that our faith, if it's true and genuine, ought to lead to and produce good works in our lives. Now, once we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, only then are we enabled to do works and to keep the commands God has given us and calls us to fulfill. We can't do it before because, again, we're dead in sins and transgressions. And a dead man can't do anything. Paul's emphasis, then, is on the role of works before conversion and salvation in Christ. Right? And Paul says that such works are no good. They can't save. But James, on the other hand, is emphasizing the role of works that come after or even flow from our already having been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. James' point will be, good works are actually a demonstration of our faith and are the expected fruit of faith In our lives. And so in this, James and Paul agree. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, a a familiar passage in which Paul makes very clear that we are saved by grace through faith and not of works, he mentions the proper place of works. We often hear quoted uh, Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, which really emphasize this point. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So by grace, through faith, we're saved. And these are gifts given to us by God. Even faith itself is a gift given to us. We're not saved by our works. But then, and we should never... Read verses 8 and 9 without verse 10 because it helps to pull all these things into perspective. And verse 10 is this. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so you see, good works are here, but the good works come after salvation. Once we're saved, once we're justified by faith, uh, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then we can do the works that God has called us to do, that He's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's why we become the new creations, is to do the will of God our Father. And so yes, James and Paul agree. And faith and works do have this connection to our salvation, but... The connection is made, uh, how and when that connection made, is really the critical issue. And so we always have to remember that. There is a connection, but how is it made and, and when is that made? And so with, the, with this understanding, we come to these two questions that James puts forth here in verse 14. And hopefully this will help us to understand more what he uh, is speaking about. Let's consider the first question. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now this is a rhetorical question as the implied answer is quite clear. If you say you have faith but have no works to go along with it, well then such faith is useless. 
Again, remember, James isn't speaking of, of works leading up to faith or earning salvation, but works which follow or flow from one who's been saved already. And basically, we can understand it like this. If you claim to be a Christian, and yet you don't live like a Christian according to the revealed will of God, well, then your profession rings hollow, and your faith may not be genuine. And if that's the case, if it's not genuine, then it's useless. Now, we may wonder, useless in what way? Well, to answer this question, James gives a practical illustration in verses 15 and 16. He says, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Well, first we note that a faith without works is useless to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? You profess to be a Christian, and say a fellow believer comes to you, and they're in great need. In fact, they're literally they're naked and they're starving. Now surely there's something that you can do, anything, even a little something, that you could give to ease their suffering. But instead, you bestow upon them nothing but empty words. Depart in peace. Be warmed and filled. What has your faith done to help them? Absolutely nothing. With what are they to be warmed with? You haven't given them any clothes or a blanket. With what are they to be filled with? You haven't given them any food or drink. It's really an insult. In fact... The charge, depart in peace, we know was a, a common blessing given to someone when they were leaving, right? Go in peace, uh, be safe, travel, have a, have a good trip. Right? It's kind of that, that sense of just, we might use say something similar, go in peace, farewell. But for the Jew, and even more so for the Christian, of course it had the added dimension of being sent forth in the peace of God. And hence we find in the greetings and the salutations throughout the New Testament, right? Grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's a, it's a, a common greeting made even more powerful and, and more of a blessing because it's the peace of God and the peace of our Savior. And so these were meant to be a tremendous blessing. But here these words, depart in peace, is more like a curse the vain empty words that were spoken we may even understand them as as go and and find peace somewhere else go and and get out of my face and and be warmed and and be filled some other place because i don't have the time or or the energy to deal with it that's essentially what these actionless words are saying now as christians we're called to love one another to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to build up one another, and uh, spur one another, one another on to good works. We're to share our burdens with one another. We're to be a blessing to one another. And if your profession of faith is nothing but empty words, words not accompanied by action, 
Well, then it's of no use to your brother or sister in Christ who may be in need. And secondly, we note that faith without works is useless even for ourselves. In fact, even puts us in grave danger. Right? James, again, has been adamant about the necessity of helping the poor and needy. Remember back in 1 verse 27, he said that pure and undefiled religion was helping the, uh, the orphans and the widows in their time of trouble. And then he warned against those who would discriminate against the poor as they're violating the, the royal law. They're not loving their neighbor as themselves. And this violation is even greatly magnified here. Because this is a fellow believer. And instead of helping them, even with the smallest uh, of kind acts, they insult them and send them away with vain, empty words. Now something is seriously wrong with this picture. What kind of faith is being professed? Is it a true faith? Is their profession of faith in Christ just as empty and hollow as the words spoken to this fellow believer? The Apostle John actually asked the very same question. In 1 John 3, verse 17, he says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So how can you say that you're a Christian, that that the love of God abides in you, if you don't help your brother who's in need? And again, the implication is clear and quite strong. It could very well mean that the love of God does not abide in you. That is, it means you're just a hypocrite and that you're not truly a believer in Christ. And if you're not truly a believer in Christ, well then, of what use to you is a faith that is devoid of sincerity? It puts you in danger of eternal judgment. And so... A dead faith, faith without works, is useless to ourselves. And thirdly, we see that faith without works is useless to Jesus, to our Lord and Savior. Hey, James' illustration here is, is reminiscent of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 25 about the judgment on the last great day. Matthew 25, Jesus talking about the sheep on the right who are the righteous ones being separated from the goats on the left who are the unrighteous And then he says the righteous will be blessed with eternal life and they will be greatly rewarded because they were faithful to minister to the king, even to Jesus. Jesus says in verse 35 of Matthew 25, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And so the righteous ask, of course, then they follow that, well, well when did we see you and, and minister to you in, in such times of need? And the king replies in verse 40, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. And so when we minister to others and show love, mercy, kindness, and compassion toward them by actually doing something, 
and serving them and seeking to meet their needs, we are in fact ministering to and serving our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, on the other hand though, if we refuse to minister to the least of these and insult them by sending them away with empty words that are only going to add uh, pain and suffering, we're neglecting to serve our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and refusing to serve Him. Now for those who may profess His name but refuse to serve Him, Jesus goes on here in Matthew 25 And He will say to them on that last great day, verse 41, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Beloved of God, it doesn't get any more serious than that. Faith that isn't accompanied by works is not only useless, but as James says in verse 17 here, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And a dead faith is really no faith at all. But an objection is raised. James says in verse 18, Oh, some will say, You have faith and I have works. Right? And the point of this objection is basically this. Look, does it really matter? Right? If you have faith and if I have works, who cares? Aren't we all on the same team? Don't we all just love Jesus? Isn't that what's most important? Faith or works, does it really matter as long as we have at least one or the other? Well, here the attempt is being made with this objection to separate faith from works. To say you can have one without the other, but this is impossible. And we know before that faith and works are connected. And again, it's true that we can't just lump them together and confuse them, and some sadly do, but they are distinct. And the, but there is a certain God-appointed order and a relationship between faith and works. Works can only follow after faith. They can't come before. But again, the two are very closely connected. And with James' response to this objection, we see just how that connection is made. James goes on to say, Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And so here's a a challenge, right, is, is made to the one who is raising this objection. Look, if you say that you have faith, but you don't have any works, well then show me your faith. Demonstrate to me that you actually have faith. Let me see it, so that I can believe that you truly have what you say you have. Now, of course this challenge can't be met. Because if the person says they have faith but they have no works, well it's going to be impossible for them to show or to give evidence of their faith. Now, sure, they can speak words, and they can talk about what they believe. But as James pointed out earlier, words can be empty and misleading and even destructive. But then James concludes, but then look. See, I can actually show you my faith by what I do. I can show you what it means to be a Christian. 
I can show you by how I live and how I act toward others that I love God and that I love my neighbor as myself. I can back up my words with clear evidence that what I profess and confess is true, that it's real, it's sincere, and is the transforming power of God's grace at work in me. You can test my faith by looking at my works, how I live, and how I seek to glorify God in all that I do. And so the connection between faith and works then is that works, how you live your lives, it shows to others that your faith is true and sincere. And so it does matter. Faith without works is useless. And so we must have both. Because a living faith shows itself through works of love toward God and neighbor. Well, we come then to the second question in verse 14. James, speaking of useless faith that has no works, asks this question, can faith save him? Again, the implied answer is no, it can't save him. Why can't it save him? Isn't faith, faith? Is there a a non-saving faith? Well, indeed there is. See, there are many kinds of faith that don't save. We've already considered that an insincere, hypocritical faith doesn't save. And we think about Jesus condemning the scribes and the Pharisees, and this is exactly what they had. He said it was a, uh, an insincere, hypocritical faith. But it did them no good. It didn't save them. You can also have a sincere faith. It's very true and sincere in a certain respect, but it's a sincere faith in a false God. See, that doesn't save either. And the world is filled with those in that condition where they're serving other gods and idols and false religions. They hold their faith sincerely, but it doesn't save them because it's a false god they're serving. A faith placed in an object, in a person or an animal or strength or wealth or whatever it may be. Again, that doesn't save. But people put their trust and their hope in such things. And as James implies here, a faith, even a professed faith in the one true living God, if it isn't then followed by and demonstrated by works, it does not save. For such a faith, as he said in verse 17, is a dead faith. And a dead faith can't save. It can't do anything. A dead faith can't save because a dead faith is really no faith at all. It's useless, it's empty, and void and lifeless. Now this is a hard truth. But but James isn't just pulling this out of a hat somewhere. No, in fact, he's actually, again, echoing the teaching of Jesus. For example, in John 15, verses 1 and 2, Jesus declares, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And so the true branches, the branches that are, that are part of the vine, that are healthy and alive, and they bear fruit, well, they're pruned so they can bear even more fruit. But the branches that are also part of the vine, but they're dead, well, they're not going to bear any fruit at all. Now, those branches must, must, might say, well, look, we're, we're still a part of the vine, though. Doesn't that mean something? We're a member of the church, of the body of Christ. But the vine dresser, if he sees no fruit on them, that is, no works, he knows that the branches are dead. And he knows that dead branches are never going to bear fruit. They can't bear fruit. And so they're then cut off and they're disposed of. And so, again, Jesus, in that illustration, is making the same emphasis that uh, James is here, that a faith without works is a dead faith, and a dead faith can't save anyone. It's worthless. Just cut it off and throw it in the fire. Again, James demonstrates this hard truth with another illustration in verse 19. He says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Now in this profession of faith, James may be recalling Deuteronomy 6.4. Right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? And the Jews referred to this as the great Shaman, And it was essentially their confession of faith. Right? It was the summary of what they believed and trusted in for their hope and salvation. We believe in the one true God. God is one. There is only one God, the Lord God of Israel. But James is saying here, look, if you, if you believe in God, you know, that's great. That's wonderful. Hey, you're doing well. You, you have faith. And again, many, many people today have this very same, very simple, very basic confession and profession of faith. I believe in God. You go out and you ask anybody on the street, do you believe in God? Most of the people are going to say, I believe in God. There will be some that will say, I don't believe in God. But there will be many who say, yes, I believe in God. And so that's great. It's a wonderful thing to believe in God. And James says, you know what? It's, it's wonderful. But then, he shockingly adds here, you know what? Even the demons believe and tremble. What? The demons have faith? Indeed they do. At least they believe there is one true living God because they know Him. And we see this uh, throughout Jesus' ministry, right? As Jesus uh, goes and He's healing people and as He's casting out demons, well, before being cast out from the person uh, that they were tormenting, the demons would often identify Jesus. And they would say, what have we, for example, what have we to do with you? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. They knew exactly who Jesus was. They knew who God was. In fact, we're told that they made these professions of faith so frequently that Jesus had to silence them and rebuke them so that the people would not misunderstand. 
And so the demons believe in God. And yet they shudder with great fear. They tremble at His power and holiness. They tremble because though they believe in Him, they know their faith is a dead faith. Why? Because their works and their deeds aren't good and righteous. They're not done for God's glory because their works are evil. And they're sinful and they're done contrary to God's revealed will. And the the demons tremble because though they believe in God, they know His just judgment will come upon them for their evil rebellion against Him. And James' point here is very clear and very sharp. If you have faith, but you don't have the works to show it, well then you're no better than the demons. And yet, at least the demons tremble in fear because they know what's coming as opposed to the hypocrite who thinks that he is his faith without works is a true saving faith. Again, we may be surprised by, by what James is saying here. But again, James isn't teaching anything that Jesus hasn't already spoken about. In fact, in In the one passage where that common person on the street, when you ask them about uh, if they believe in God, I believe in God, and uh, what's your favorite part of the Bible, they're going to probably say, well, the Sermon on the Mount. Right? That's the only part of the Bible they, they've ever heard of and they, they believe and say, this is how we ought to truly live. Right? You would just Don't forget all the letters and Paul and everything, just the Sermon on the Mount. But in that Sermon on the Mount... Jesus says some very hard and challenging things, which certainly points to the fact that those who claim that probably have never even read the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus says things very dramatic and shocking. For example, Matthew 7, beginning at verse 17, Jesus says, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, this is similar to what we saw earlier in John 15 regarding the vine. Right? The good tree bears good fruit. That is, good faith produces good works. But a bad tree produces bad fruit. Dead faith produces dead fruit, which again is really no fruit at all. But note Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. And so if someone makes a profession of faith, well then they can confirm its truth by living in consistency with that profession by doing the good works for God's glory that He's called us to do. Someone who makes a profession of faith though and and doesn't strive to live a godly life, Well, their faith is a false, dead faith. And it won't save them. And this is what James has been saying. But Jesus now continues with these shocking words. A little bit later, Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
See, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so on the last great day, there will be those who claim, I believe in God. Right? I have faith. I love Jesus. And some will even have an appearance of good works. They'll say, well, look at all the things that I've done. Right? I, I've spoken these, these prophecies, and I've, I've even performed miracles and wonders, or at least have given appearance of doing so. And yet Jesus will cast them out because they haven't done the will of His Father in heaven. Yes, they profess a faith, but it's a dead faith because it doesn't bring forth any good works to the glory of God. And what is the will of the Heavenly Father? That we fulfill the royal law. To love God with all our heart, souls, mind, and strength and that we love our neighbor, especially our, our brother or sister in Christ who may be in need, that we love them as we would ourselves. Serving and ministering to them so that we may serve and minister to Christ. Fulfilling the royal law. Now James now summarizes with a final probing question. And basically, it's the sense of evaluate what's been shown to you regarding faith and works. And consider the answer to the two previous questions. And, and what do you think? He says, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Or maybe a better translation would be, or do you recognize, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And this question is directed not only uh, to the foolish fellow who sought to separate works from faith in verse 18, but also to James' readers and even to us who might be tempted to foolishly think that mere words, even good words, like, I believe in Christ alone for salvation, that they can be professed without any actions or works to back them up, to prove them to demonstrate them as being true and sincere. Now we're foolish if we think that we can have faith without works. See, we have no grounds for hope and assurance if our profession of faith in Jesus Christ isn't demonstrated. If it's not demonstrated to ourselves, if it's not demonstrated to others, if it's not even demonstrated to God. It's not demonstrated by doing the good works, by a life that has truly been transformed by God's grace and which diligently seeks to bear great and abundant fruit for His glory. Faith without works is an empty, dead faith. But a living, vibrant faith, brothers and sisters, will show itself by how we seek to serve and minister to Christ and to others in His name in our lives. Truly, may the Spirit of Christ graciously enable you to recognize this truth and to conform your faith and your lives to it, all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do praise You and thank You for Your Word and especially this very important challenge and, 
And especially as we consider the role of uh, the connection between faith and works and keeping that all in proper perspective, but just that you call us to live holy and righteous lives. And it means nothing if we just say, we believe, if our lives are not consistent with a profession that says we believe and that we truly love you. And we want to demonstrate that love to you by obeying your commands and and by loving you with our heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength and by loving our neighbors as ourselves, by seeking to serve and minister to others so that we might truly serve and minister to Christ our Savior. Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, keep each of us here, keep us from that dead faith, but that our faith would truly be living as we seek to display it before the world. Not just to, to give us ourselves assurance of faith and salvation. Not just to be a witness to others. When the, both of those have a great a place. That, that works have a great place in that. That we can be a witness to the outside world. By living consistently with our, our profession of faith. But especially. That by doing the good works that you have called us to do. That you have created us to do that we might truly bring all glory and honor and praise to Your holy name, because You alone are truly worthy. And so, Father, we pray that Your Spirit would be working in each of our hearts and pressing these truths upon us, drawing our hearts in line together with Your holy word and with Your Spirit so that we can be more like Christ. That's our desire. That's our goal. May we hunger and thirst for it. Again, to your glory, honor, and praise. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.